dill pickles, apricot jam, and pickled beets, amongst other preserved foods, are all central to traditional Jewish cooking. On today's Please Explain, we talk to Emily Pastor, founder of the Chicago Food Swap, about Jewish preserving from jams and fruit butters to pickled eggs and sauerkraut, and its roots in Jewish culture. Her new cookbook, The Joys of Jewish Preserving, Modern Recipes with Traditional Roots for Jams, Pickles, Fruit Butters, and More for Holidays and Every Day, contains a collection of her recipes rooted in Jewish tradition. It is published by Harvard Common Press, and I am so pleased that it's brought Emily Pastor to our show. Hi, Emily. Welcome. Hey, Melissa. Uh, We invite all of you to join the conversation. You can call us at 212-433-9692. And if you have any questions about preserving or Jewish preserving, you can also tweet us at at Leonard Lopate or find us on our show page. So, Emily, what's the connection between Jewish food and preserving? Well, there's actually multiple connections, is is what I would say. Um, I was sort of inspired to write the book at first because I was thinking about all of these iconic Jewish foods, particularly the the Ashkenazi foods, the sort of you know Eastern European Russian uh, foods um, that incorporate some kind of preserved element. So not only the kosher dill pickle or the pickled green tomato that you might find at your deli, but also the sauerkraut on your Reuben sandwich, the jam in your rugula the jam in your hamantash, and even the applesauce on your latkes. All of those are what I would call preserves of a type. Um, and so I thought, gosh, it's, if so many of our most beloved Jewish foods incorporate preserves, I wonder if there's more to this tradition. And now, does this date back a long time? Does this go back to biblical times? It does. It does. Of course, um, you know, in, in those times, everybody was preserving, right? Not just the Jews. <laughs> right, because you <laughs> because had to. It was a matter. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. There's no refrigeration. There's no cargo transport. Everybody's preserving. But um, I do believe there was a particularly robust tradition and, and a somewhat distinctive tradition of of Jewish preserving. It certainly starts in the Bible with um, preserving things like dates. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some scholars who will tell you that the phrase, the biblical phrase, the land of milk and honey, uh, the honey actually refers to date syrup or date paste as opposed to the honey that comes from bees because there was no evidence that biblical people actually kept bees. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, so it really goes back that far. Um, but for the Jews, a lot of um, what happens is, is, is in the di- diaspora. Certainly what we think of as Jewish cuisine happens mostly in the diaspora. And um, so you were brought up Ashkenazi, but then you yeah. uh, went to France and you lived with a Sephardic Jewish family and you learned about the difference between Ashkenazi preserving, and well, Ashkenazi food and Sephardic food. How does that um, come out in this book? Do you talk about both traditions? Absolutely. The book um, really covers both traditions, and that was something that was really important to me, um, because there are really distinctive um, preserving traditions on both sides. Um, you know, and also, of course, I love I love Sephardic cuisine. It's not the cuisine I grew up with, but gosh, it's delicious, right? Uh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, you know, for the Ashkenazi Jews who are mostly living in colder climates, in harsher climates, you know, Northern Europe, Central Europe, Russia, um, they have a short growing season. They are preserving what they can um, when it's in season, the fruits of the summer, the root vegetables that are the ones that grow well there. They you know, begin fermenting those when fermentation is introduced um, from the east. 
and you know absolutely a matter both of survival uh, for these people and also a matter of you know really trying to sort of um, zhuzh up a, a pretty bland diet uh, particularly in the winter you know those fermented pickles were adding a lot when your diet's you know black bread and potatoes right. and stuff like that but for the Sephardic um, Jews there was, a, again, a very robust tradition of preserving. Um, they had a lot more sugar. Uh, sugar was not quite so much of a luxury item. And so they really had a wonderful tradition of sweets and candying fruits and fruits and syrup. Um, and, of course, hospitality was a huge part of uh, the tradition of that part of the world, the Middle East and North Africa, uh, the Mediterranean. And so that was um, a big part of the preserving tradition was about hospitality. When guests came to your home, you wanted to greet them with sweetness. And so it would be very common to um, serve guests um, what they would call a dulce, you know, maybe like a, or some people might call it a spoon sweet, a beautifully preserved half of an apricot. Um, and these were served with elaborate ceremony on silver trays and accompanied by, you know, crystal glasses of water. And these items were often something that would be part of a bride's dowry. The actual preserves were part of the dowry. Oh, no, sorry, the beautiful Oh, the beautiful, right, the serving with. things yes. were part of the dowry. Exactly. And then it was expected, I guess, that the bride would then make all of the preserves to be served on top of it. Yes, I'm sure not to her mother-in-law's satisfaction, of course, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> That's how it goes in all cultures at all times. So now, exactly. Now, when did you start doing preserving yourself? You, you write that it's um, something that you've discovered as an adult. Yes. Um, I started preserving probably about 10 years ago, um, in part inspired by, you know, just the wonderful things I was finding at my, at my farmer's markets um, in Chicago. But also, um, my daughter has uh, many food allergies, um, some of which she's outgrown, but at the time she was quite little and she was allergic to, it felt like everything under the sun, um, wheat, eggs, dairy. And so I was looking for something she and I could do together in the kitchen, and I was looking to make more of our foods um, for that reason. And so that's when I got really into preserving because I thought, well, we can make jam you know, together. It's just fruit and sugar. And that worked out. She can eat jam, and that's perfectly fine. Exactly. Um, and like, luckily now she can eat way, way more things. We're so lucky. But that, that got me, that sort of was what led me to um, preserving, and I just found that I adored it, and I loved and it. Was, I found it to be such a satisfying um, and fulfilling thing to do in the kitchen. So we have a caller. We have Andrew in Brooklyn. Hi, Andrew. Are you here? Yeah, uh, my grandmother, who was born in Latvia and lived in Latvia uh, through her early teens, told me that uh, fruit and vegetables were very abundant during the summer, but come winter, uh, nothing. So you had to make huge quantities of sauerkraut from cabbage, like literally barrels of it. You had to preserve mm -hmm. fruits. Uh, otherwise, in the winter, uh, you would have no fruit and no vegetables, uh, and you'd end up with scurvy. You had no source of vitamin C, so it was an absolute necessity. Yeah, Emily, you write about that in your book. You write about how a lot of the early preserving was very medicinal, using berries especially, which are very, you know, high in vitamin C. Oh, absolutely. And I'm so pleased to hear that account from Andrew because that absolutely, um, you know, it's like a firsthand account of everything I was finding in my research. Um, yeah, the, people knew. People absolutely knew that this was a matter of survival. And, you know, they maybe didn't know, you know, 
what vitamin C was or what scurvy was, but they absolutely knew if they did not, you know, make those berry syrups or those fruit butters or make those pickles, those fermented pickles, they were not going to make it through the winter. Um, and yet there is a tradition of these berry, particularly berry syrups, black, things like black currants, um, raspberries were believed to be tonics uh, for the sick. And my guess is probably some number of the people who were dosed with these syrups were cured of what ailed them. <laughs> well, they're very, they're, they're really powerful. You know, I mean, we still use, I know elderberry is very popular still um, medicinally mm-hmm. today for when you get a cold, you make elderberry syrup. Absolutely, and black things like black currants are just packed with um, uh, anti-inflammatories, um, all kinds of antioxidants. Really, really healthy foods. Now, let's um, talk about the novice preserver, someone who wants to start pickling but isn't exactly sure what to do. What kinds of equipment should they stock up on? Well, you know, the first thing I would say is if you are want to start experimenting with some pickles and jams, and you don't. And, and making them be shelf-stable is not necessarily very important to you. You can go ahead and make refrigerator jam and make, um, you know, refrigerator pickles or what we call quick pickles. I'm not snobby about that at all. I would love it if people would, if they're intimidated at all, would start with those. Um, the reason that I like to can um, and make, which by which you make your pickles or your jams or whatnot shelf-stable, um, is because I like to really eat seasonally and I like to preserve um these fruits and vegetables, the local fruits and vegetables when they're in season, and then enjoy them all winter. So that's, you know, more, uh, if that's something that's important to you, then you may want to start exploring um, the canning process. And you don't need a ton of equipment. You can absolutely go out and buy the big canning pot. Um, Not a huge investment monetarily. I know a lot of um, the people listening live in small New York City apartments, so it's more of a space issue possibly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But, you know, if you've got a big stock pot that you're using for soup, that can also be used for this purpose. The key here is you need some sort of rack or insert or steamer basket, anything. You can sort of jerry-rig it, but you want to make sure you lift the um, jars, the glass canning jars, off of the bottom of your pot. You don't want them touching the bottom of the pot. That is a critical thing Um, because they could crack is the main reason. If you've just joined um, us, we are talking with um, Emily Pastor, the author of The Joys of Jewish Preserving, and we're talking about stocking, getting your kitchen ready to start preserving. So a stock pot is necessary. It doesn't have to be, you don't need to buy a big canning pot. Um, and then you need a rack so that the jars don't touch the bottom of the pot so they don't crack. That's exactly right, yeah. And you can use all kinds of things. I mean, if you really want to be very low-key about it, you could probably use a folded kitchen towel. Anything that's going to be safe to have in boiling water that will elevate your jars um, is the key. And then beyond that, a few things are handy to have. A funnel. um, There's a little gizmo called a jar lifter that is not expensive at all and works way better than tongs. Oh, just because it doesn't slip? Yes, exactly. Um, And, you know, these are hot, wet slippery glass jars. So it's a bit of a safety thing. Um, but other than that, yeah, you're and get some canning jars and you're good to go. And what about the jars? I mean, can you use old canning, you know, jars that you've bought preserves in or do you have to buy new jars or do you have to just buy the new lids? You know, I, you, I would say go out and buy the jars. Because, so start fresh. Um, yeah. And the, once you've got the jars, the jars and the rings are reusable um, as long as they're in good condition. The lids are only supposed to be used actually for canning one time. You can continue to use them for storage, but they're only going to do that seal one time. Um, So if you find old canning jars, 
um, old ball jars or what have you at a farmer's at a flea market or at um, a thrift store or in someone's basement, those are fine too. But definitely use jars that are intended for home canning use. And there's lots from everything from the you know really classic American ball jar to the beautiful fancy European brands like the Weck jars. And um, when so when people, one of the things that I know stops people from preserving is that they're worried that they're not going to get a seal. So how do you know if your jar has properly sealed, if you really canned it properly? Yeah, there's a so that there's a couple things you can do um, to ensure that you're going to get a good seal. And one is, I would say, don't overfill your jars. Leave some room at the top. That's that headspace. Exactly. And every canning recipe is going to tell you, you know, leave a quarter of an inch, leave a half an inch. Um, wipe the um, rims of your jars really nicely, with a, maybe with like a wet cloth, to make sure there's no residue that could interfere with the sealing. Um, and that should work. Sometimes, and so, you know, you had, the question was, how can you tell? One, if you're lucky, you'll get to hear that sound, that thunk that's so satisfying right. <laughs> that tells you. Um, otherwise, you should be able to eyeball it. You know, there's a little button in the center, and it should be pressed down, concave, not sort of still up. Um, and if you can't, you know, if, it's, if you can't pry it off easily, then you probably have a good seal. Now, about the headspace, so just leaving that little bit, is there, yeah. can you leave too much? I mean, how do you know if it's the exact right amount? You can leave too much. I, I, I tell people that the, what's specified in a recipe is really a, a ceiling as well as a floor. So if, if it's a jam recipe and it says a quarter of an inch, really try to leave a quarter of an inch. I, I mean, if it ends up being a teeny bit more, that's fine. But what you don't want to have happen is you don't want to sort of halfway fill up a jar and try to process that. The reason is, is because there's too much oxygen in that jar. And all of the oxygen is not going to have time to escape during the time that the jar spends in the boiling water. And so you won't have um, a proper, safe, oxygen-free environment that no baddies can get into. Now, let's talk about, you know, um, food poisoning, because that comes up a lot with, with <laughs> let's just get it out there and just talk about it. Um, well, first let's of all, I, what's the, I mean, jam, is food poisoning a problem with jam, or is it just with pickles? It really shouldn't be with either. The, the thing that people are always afraid of, Melissa, is, is the B word is botulism. Um, and what I tell people is botulism, the microorganism that causes botulism, it cannot live in a high acid environment. So this kind of canning that we're talking about today, water bath canning, is a very safe method of preserving for high acid foods. How do you know if something's high acid without being a chemist yourself? Well, that's where your recipes, your tested, um, reliable recipes from cookbooks, from reliable online sources, those are going to be your friend here because those will all have been tested to be in that safe pH level. Um, so really, you know, when people say, I'm worried I'm going to poison my friends and family, they're, what they're worried about is botulism. And again, it really, as long as you're following these recipes, it shouldn't be a concern for you. Now, can you do, Beyond, can, I'm sorry, go on. Go ahead. No, go ahead. So now, does botulism exist in jams or is it just in, I mean, are, are jams just by their nature always so high acid because of the fruit or do you have to worry about it in like an apple, maybe like a lower acid fruit? Yeah. Again, or is the sugar... It's about, you know, the, it's the combination. The sugar in jam is what's going to help you get that spreadable texture that we're looking for. Um, you know, the interaction between the pectin, which is the um, substance that gives fruit its structure, 
the acid and the sugar. Those are all contributing to that nice spreadable texture that we all want in our jams. In terms of the acidity, um, there are some fruits that are a little bit in the gray zone in terms of being the right acidity level to can. And so those, you're going to add lemon juice to those recipes. You're going to acidify them. And again, the best advice I can give to people is follow a recipe. Um, sometimes people are bummed out by that because they are the kind of cook that likes to be super creative. And, you know, there's, there's certainly still room for creativity. You can always add, you know, a little bit of cinnamon, a little bit of ginger. Those things are not going to change the acidity level. But from a safety point of view, you want to be following recipes in terms of the, sh- the fruit, the lemon juice, that kind of thing. And then the sugar as well. Exactly, yeah. Now, so one of the, of course, you know, famous Jewish preserves are kosher dill pickles. Are making, mm-hmm. Is making pickles something that's hard to do? How, what's the process for making pickles? I mean, right now we're in cucumber season, so I think this, uh, yeah. is, this, is, this is the time to do it if you're going to do it. Go do it. Well, there's, you know, there's two kinds of kosher dill pickles. There's the vinegar pickles that are, um, and those are really straightforward. You make a vinegar brine on the stove, you know, vinegar, water, salt. Um, if you want to get creative and add a little sugar, you can do that too. Um, you know, whatever your seasonings that you prefer, dill seed, mustard seed. Um, and that, those, that's a very straightforward project. If you want to get into the really traditional fermented kosher dill pickle, a um, bit more involved, but also something that I think is absolutely very doable for home cooks. I'm Melissa Clark, in today for Leonard Lope, and I'm speaking with Emily Pastor, the author of The Joys of Jewish Preserving. We're speaking with Emily Pastor, who's the author of The Joys of Jewish Preserving. And right before the break, we were talking about the difference between vinegar pickles and fermented pickles. So now fermentation is a little bit harder for people who are just starting to get into pickling. Can you talk about how how it works with pickles and also with sauerkraut, which is another fermented preserve? Absolutely. So the thing about um, when you ferment vegetables, all you need are, is salt. And sometimes you need a salt water brine. Sometimes you just need salt. That's why this was such a revolutionary technique um, for our ancestors hundreds of years ago. Um, you know, it was just it was so incredibly easy to preserve things like cabbage um, and cucumbers and, and beets. Um, for our modern-day fermenters, um, Again, you want to make sure you get a good, tested, safe recipe because the ratio here of the cucumbers or the cabbage to the salt is going to be critical for getting the results that you're looking for. The basic process involves, um, for cucumbers, for example, you make a saltwater brine and you put your cucumbers in the brine and you weigh them down, hopefully, to get them to keep them submerged in the brine. And on the market now, Melissa, there's so many products out there um, for to make this really easy for people, so that they can do it in you know quart-sized mason jars. There's glass weights that keep the produce submerged in the brine. There's special airlock lids, you know, that to let the gas out without letting any um, oxygen or bad guys in. Um, so it's really something that's very easy. And then once you've got your veggies in the brine, it's a matter of waiting. Um, you want to keep them in a relatively cool place, but room temperature is mostly pretty good. You want to keep them in a relatively dark place if you can, and then you just kind of wait until they, they taste good to you. 
So we have a call. We have Ben from Jamaica who actually wants to ask if you have any tips for making um, new kraut. Yeah, hi. Um, you have a wonderful show. I've been taking notes all along. Uh, many years ago, when I was uh, still a teenager in my um, childhood community of Jamaica, Queens, and things got a little bit uh, too uh, chaotic in my house, I would uh, go around the corner to um, my uh, Polish neighbor who came over uh, along with um, hundreds of thousands of other uh, displaced people after the Second World War, and he would either offer me um, a Schlivovitz, a plum brandy, which I thankfully <laughs> declined, or, or a plate of um, the most delicious sauerkraut I've ever eaten. And to this date, despite all these um, you know, specialty uh, stores and fairs, I've never uh, found a duplicate of what this man was able to make. And I remember once asking him if he could show me his rig. And all he had was an, an approximately five-gallon, four- to five-gallon ceramic crock that seemed to be covered with a little bit of cheesecloth in the darkest, coolest corner of his basement. And, you know, unfortunately, I went away to college, and, um, of course, uh, n none of these great people are around anymore, and mm -hmm. uh, no one bothered to query them as to how they did things so you know um you're right on target with the topic and i'd really love to know how to how to make that again emily so what oh, do you think that's such a that's such a wonderful story isn't it i'm just like totally touched by that you know so the sauerkraut um Right, so the the new kraut versus sauerkraut, it's just a matter of how long it spends in the in it in the brine, um, and that, and it's really a personal taste. Um, the basic process for making sauerkraut, cabbage has so much liquid that it doesn't even need a brine. All it needs is salt. So you know, you shred your cabbage up really really fine, you salt it, you massage it like crazy till it releases all that liquid, um, and you really and they, you know there's special tools for this, right? A tamper. Um, and then, like you say, you put it in the dark, cool corner, and you wait. But um, then, I'm sorry, could you explain, go ahead. Could you yeah. explain then why the sauerkraut you would get in a grocery store, which is so salty, so mm -hmm. uh, vinegary, is nothing like I recall what he served me, which really had very little salt and um, a very light vinegary taste. Was there perhaps um, a, um, a washing process afterwards that he did? Absolutely. That would have been something, again, very personal. But, you know, once you, once you decide the sauerkraut is the way you like it, you know, it's maybe, right. maybe you fermented it for six days, maybe you fermented it for two weeks. It's so personal. Um, a lot of people will then rinse it and then to store it in, um, in the fridge at that point. You want to move it to the fridge and store it at that point because that's going to halt the process from fermenting anymore. But I agree with you that store-bought sauerkraut is a completely different beast. Terrible. Um, and, yeah, and doesn't, moreover, doesn't always have the, um, all the probiotics and other amazing health benefits um, that you get from making it yourself. Right. And just one last thing. The only thing that he added to his um, recipe were caraway seeds. That's it. Mm. That's it. Right, yeah, salt and caraway, so so classic, those classic classic Central European flavors. Um, yeah, and people now you do add other things. Um, 
they they like to add you know dill or or lemon juice or all kinds of things. But peppers. that sounds to me, yeah, peppers. It sounds to me really wonderful. Ben, thank you for so thank much you very for much. your thank call. You very much. Um, we we have Eddie in Clifton, New Jersey. Eddie, are you still there? You wanted to ask about sugar and fruit ratios. Yes, I did. Hello. Um, I was wondering, I go to the supermarket and stuff, and I read ingredients because I have some like spiked food allergies and things like that. Um, sure. Why do they add sugar to jellies and preserve if it's already naturally sweet? And what's the deal with uh, sugar-free jellies and preserves when they add Splenda and things like that? To that? How do you make something already sweet as fruit make it sugar-free like that? Why would they add artificial sweeteners to it? Why not just take right. the sugar out of it completely and just leave it without sugar? I always, I never understood that. Yeah, you know, I'm. So basically, what happens is, is that sugar in the canning process and making jams and jellies, sugar is in, acting as a preservative. It's occupying the molecular space that otherwise bad guys, spoilers, bacteria could could get into. So that's one of the reasons why sugar is important in the preserving process. Um, In addition, as I was mentioning earlier, it's part of getting the texture that we're looking for, um, that spreadable texture. You need the interaction between the sugar, uh, the fruit's natural pectin, and then usually some kind of acid. Um, Today, in terms of Make, if you're making your own and you are, for whatever reason, just personal preference or you're on a special diet that needs to um, be low on sugar, there are options for you. It has to do with the kind of pectin that you might want to use for preserving. I would suggest looking for a product called Pomona's Pectin, which can be used um, to make very low sugar or even no sugar um, jams. In my book, I have several recipes for what I call fruit butters. Um, which there's no, which is a bit of a misnomer. There's no butter involved. It's just fruit that's been cooked down so long and slowly that it's got a texture almost like a butter. And these are a lower sugar product than jams. Um, and the and they were very traditional um, for the in the Jewish tradition because sugar was a luxury item for people um, at that time. So these fruit butters um, are really a nice lower sugar option. They have a shorter shelf life. And, again, that comes into how sugar acts as a preservative. Um, But they are very delicious. Thanks so much for calling, Eddie. Um, We have John on the line, and he has a question, or maybe he wants to talk about the olives that his his mother made. He grew up in an Italian house. John. Hi. Hi. Uh, Emily and and, and Melissa, great show today. Yeah, so I, I grew up in a southern Italian family, and my mom would preserve olives. They would actually get green olives in from California, the big colossal type, and we would spend time sitting there actually cracking them with a big stone. Um, because they were just so hard. And then she had this crock that the gentleman spoke about that they would preserve the um, the um, sauerkraut in. But these are just ancient forms of clay crocks for doing all kinds of utility work and are still used by some people today. And it really, the process involved just changing out the water multiple times with a, a big disc of wood on top of the crock and a heavy stone pressing down on the olives to, to squeeze out the, the bitter uh, alkaloids that are in there. And then, um, and then eventually mom would put uh, some salt in there and they would actually start pickling. And we always had this available, and it was part of the jardiniere that you would have on the table. And she would do the same thing with eggplants and some other Mm -hmm. vegetables from the garden. So I kind of grew up in that world, but I'm glad to see that you're actually codifying it, and it won't be lost to history. 
What a great story. I love that. Have you ever done olives? I've never done olives myself. Um, he may want to check out um, Domenica Marchetti's book, which is called Preserving Italy, which was one of the inspirations for my book, um, actually. When I, I, saw, I saw that book and I thought, well, if, if, you know, if there's a book about the preserving traditions of Italy, surely we can have one about the preserving um, <laughs> traditions in the Jewish faith. But she touches on some of that um, preserving an oil that's very typical for that part of the world. That sounds amazing. I bet your mom was a great cook. She's a fantastic <laughs> cook, but I'm actually getting your book because I want to see how to do it the Jewish way. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for calling, John. Um, thank so, you. So speaking, um, John mentioned eggplant, and you have given us a recipe for our show page, um, which is for a quick pickled eggplant. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I love this recipe because, again, it's so easy to do. It's a quick pickle. It's um, Anyone can do it. No, no special equipment needed. Um, and this is um, one of the reasons I do love this recipe is um, because it is from the Indian community of Jews. Um, you know, there are Jews all over the diaspora, and um, there, were, there was, in fact, a, a thriving Jewish community in India at one time, and this was, pickled eggplant was one of their specialties. Um, and I've kind of um, added some, what I think of as Sephardic flavors, things like chilies and garlic, and there's some mint in there. Mint is a, an obsession of mine. Um, but I am in love with this recipe. I make it all the time, and it is just a lovely thing to serve, um, like as meze with drinks, or even like even like almost like a chunky dip. Wow, that sounds great. Um, I think we can take one more call. Um, we have Jan from Brooklyn who wants to talk about pickled lux. Hi, Jan. Hi. My husband, Alan, has been trying for decades to reproduce his Grandma Edie's pickled lux. Do you have any <laughs> tips or help for him? Oh, I wish I did. You know, it was uh, with this book I decided to... Um, focus strictly on the, the fruits and the veggies with, with one little foray into pickled eggs. Um, but I didn't, I mean, pickled fish is such a huge, huge part of the Jewish tradition. Um, right. And I, I was intimidated by it and didn't, and didn't go there. I, um, I think there is going to be a book coming out in a, few, in a year or so by the writer Karen Solomon, um, who's going to tackle this topic. Otherwise, you know, that's what Russ and Daughters is for. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, that would be something that would be kind of thrilling to be able to make at home. Oh, well, and we do gravlocks in my family, um, and gravlocks are just about the easiest thing in the world. Um, very similar technique. You know, you salt the fish, you, you leave it in a, in a, in a dill-flavored brine, and you leave it in the fridge for a few days. Um, very easy, and that's a that's a real treat. You and that slice it super thin. I think that's a, actually that's a really good point. Is that you know we think of um, pickled lox, we think of pickled lox at least we do in Brooklyn as in a big crock, but in fact gravel lox is very close relative, and it's very easy to make. Absolutely, yeah, that's very very doable for the home cook. So now, once you have your jams and your pickles, how long will they last? I mean, I guess it depends on if you've process them in the water bath or not. But say, what's the difference between um, the shelf life of a refrigerator jam or a quick pickle and then something that you have, you know, processed in a water bath and really preserved? It, well, great question. So the first difference is, of course, is that those things you've processed in your water bath, in your boiling water bath, those are shelf stable. So they are safe to keep um, on a shelf 
without refrigeration. And the USDA says they are going to be good up to a year. Again, those, those lower sugar products, you may want to think more about six months versus a year. Um, refrigerator jams, refrigerator pickles, they're going to be good for quite a while, um, as long as you do keep them in the fridge, because, um, you know, if it's a vinegar-based pickle, vinegar is going to keep it good. I think they only get better with time, frankly. Um, and with jams, they're going to be good for a while, too. And the issue is, if, if something were to go wrong, you would know. Because, for example, your jam would get moldy on top. And so you would know, like, okay, time yeah, to go. Yeah, time to throw it out. Um, <laughs> exactly. So there's no mystery to that, at least. Well, Emily, thank you so much for talking to us today. Emily Pastor is the author of The Joys of Jewish Preserving.